0: Welcome to the Friends of NPACE podcast. My name is Josh Plockin. I'm the Chief Operating Officer for Nurse Practitioner Associates for Continuing Education, better known as NPACE. NPACE is a nonprofit continuing education organization founded in 1980 by a group of nurse practitioners looking to help advance the profession and bring nurse practitioners from across the country together for education and connection. NPACE is an ANCC-accredited provider of continuing education, offering in-person CE conferences and online CE programs for nurse practitioners. We welcome you to visit npace.org for more information on everything NPACE. We're excited that you've chosen to tune into our conversation today about management of provision psychiatry. Before we introduce our guests, wherever you may get your podcast, we want to remind our audience to please subscribe rate and leave comments and reviews the friends of npace podcast can be found on the npace learning center at learn.npace.org on youtube spotify and apple podcasts it is now my pleasure to introduce our guest today our guest today is josh hamilton and he practices telepsychiatry on a national scale with more than a quarter century of nursing experience he holds professorial appointments, academic leadership positions, and provides extensive professional consultation services in higher education, industry, and clinical affairs. He is an NEI master, psychopharmacologist, and a fellow of the AANP. The Point of Care Network proclaimed Josh to be America's top psychiatric nurse practitioner in 2021. Josh is also joined today by NPACE Executive Director, Dr. Terry Schmidt who's been a nurse practitioner for a quarter century herself. She's served in multiple clinical and educational roles, and we look forward to their excellent conversation that's about to take place. Without further ado, join me in welcoming to the Friends of NPAce podcast, Josh Hamilton and Terry Schmidt.
1: Thank you, Josh. I really appreciate that. And Dr. Josh Hamilton. I'm thrilled actually to be here with you, that you said yes, I know how precious your time is. So thank you for joining us today.
2: I'm happy to be here.
1: I'm excited about this topic because um, it's not, it's one I don't know a whole lot about. Although I too practice in telehealth in multi-states and carry all this licensure. And I have to tell you, even though it's family practice, I could say 50% of the cases I get have some component of psych mental health all the time. And I'm seeing more and more of that. Um, I wonder sometimes, though, if it's because telehealth is accessible and also a safe space for some of my patients. So I'm really interested to talk about what we're going to talk about today, which is precision psychiatry.
2: This is a fun topic. And I I think you and I have a study to do for for safe space and telepsychiatry and telehealth in general to really think about how that does change a patient's willingness to broach that subject so that's a whole nother you and i have to take that offline because i think there's (laughs) a study to be done there
1: (laughs) Uh, we should we should absolutely yeah because i think there is all right so precision psychiatry precision medicine what is it and why should we care about it because i didn't learn about it in school but i went to school Back when we had gas lamps. Oh, there's well,
2: that. yeah, you and I were still using the abacus to do our computations <laughs> for drug calc, right? Right, <laughs>
1: yeah. right.
2: It sounds to me like we've got a good fifty years between us here now, so <laughs> based on those introductions. I didn't learn it in school either, so I, and yeah. and it makes me wonder. I, I, you and I are both involved in higher education, but I see that just maybe a corner of just genetics and genomics maybe makes its way into mm. pre-licensure education. And I still don't think we're doing a great job of covering this topic in graduate nursing education. So a lot of people are in that situation where they're going, I hear this term a lot. Um, I'm a little disappointed that it's come out, of course, as precision medicine first. Uh, mm. I'm calling it precision healthcare and I'm gonna oh. push that pretty hard. I'm um, writing that down. <laughs> so we're gonna change the vernacular today when we talk about this. Okay. Um, just because the idea is not new. I mean, I think that we can take our hats off and sort of thank our brothers and sisters in oncology, probably first and foremost, to really think about a difficult to conceptualize, a very difficult to treat disease. You think about cancer and and how barbaric and behind the times, if you want to look at it that way, cancer and oncology treatment has been for a long time. So leading the way was to say, we've got to learn to do a better job. You know, Bringing a person to the brink of death in order to get a cancer eradicated or brought under control probably is a little bit of a dark ages idea. Can we really not think of something different to do here? So when you consider all of this emerging evidence about genetics and all of this quest for knowledge about what causes disease in general, cancer led the way, but we're starting to find out this is true of most every illness. And so for my line of work, psychiatry and mental health and mental illness, I've been waiting for the better part of my career for them to tell me which three genes go wrong at the same time to cause something like depression. Uh, We've been starting to get a little bit frustrated, I think, in that quest for causation. So that's not what this is about these days. Mm. It's about all of the other information we've uncovered along the way, along this journey for causation and an explanatory model at the genetic level to say, we may not have that answer yet, but we do know that there's a more individualized way to provide treatment, almost like with cancer, to say we we can't yet prevent it completely. We don't know everything that's gone wrong to cause something like depression or anxiety or something more serious and persistent like schizophrenia or a bipolar Mm -hmm. disorder. But what we can say is, of all of these emerging treatments and thankfully there are many of them these days there are ones that are going to work better for a given patient based on the genetic predispositions they have and we can take a deeper dive into what those considerations might be but it's that it's a really simple idea when we talk about pharmacogenomics it's about choosing medicines that are more apt to work for an an individual based on their genetics the broader umbrella of precision healthcare includes leveraging evidence-based practice more effectively. So you could also wrap into that, and who knows, maybe we'll touch on that as we talk today. You could wrap in all of the studies that have come out to just consider for a given symptom cluster, for a, a different version of a syndrome, which medicines have given us the most evidence, you know, and the strongest evidence to provide a positive impact when someone's symptoms look this way versus this way. So some of it is mapping EBP (laughs) onto individuals. And then some of it honestly takes us back to And I hate to tell you, some of these earliest researchers were ostracized in the field. Those were that were doing functional MRI and SPECT scanning and really Mm -hmm. trying to understand where in the brain the dysregulation occurred. So even bringing in some of those new ideas as we're seeing new ways to even finally, after all these years, image down to the level of the synapse and in some cases the receptor. So all of that taken together forms this notion of get to know a person at the biological level, at the genetic Mm -hmm. level and intervene there wherever possible. So that's precision healthcare in a nutshell.
1: That was excellent. That was very well <laughs> wrapped up. And so I was <laughs> getting, I was going to go on to the second question I had planned, but you touched on something that I was thinking about while you were talking, and that's how some of this has been maybe poo-pooed a little bit by, by mainstream healthcare. And you know, there's still, I, There are very well-known clinicians who practice in psych mental health who would never do genetic testing, right? Yep. Because yep. it's not FDA proof, it's not in the guidelines. And so uh, let, let's talk about a little bit about that. I would love to hear your opinion on that. I, I just don't think there's enough evidence yet for guidelines to be like, we should be doing this, but how close are we? And
2: yeah, I think that's the, been the frustrating part because we're so close in some instances. So when you think about these sort of fringe ideas, I mean, I was I was still finishing my post grad work in psych mental health, so it must have been in the early 2000s, and I happened to work with a pediatric psychiatrist who was a follower of one of the proponents. I won't throw his name out there. He'd be he'd be glad if I did. So, in at any rate, look him <laughs> up. He's doing spect scanning in kids to try and decide yeah. how we could do a better job differentiating something that looked either like anxiety or hyperactivity or early emergence bipolar disorder in a pediatric patient, because they look very similar. Those symptoms come out the same way, the struggles kind of manifest the same way in schools and in mm-hmm. educational settings. So the question was, Is can we take a living picture of the brain and come up with some evidence-based pictorial way of looking at these disorders so he was trying to elucidate what came to be known as the ring of fire in the brain this this very notorious area in a bipolar mania that is using at that moment a lot of glucose and a lot of oxygen and there was a way to do that and so you know there was some good information that came out of that i mean this guy was basically run out on a rail it's amazing mm-hmm. to see us come full circle now right. that they finally found an imaging agent that can look at the level of the dopamine synapse especially with ADHD to flip that coin over and to say if a SPECT doesn't have that notorious appearance for appearance for bipolar, but we could actually do a tracer study and find out that, that this person has a synaptic structure that is either stimulant responsive or stimulant non-responsive for ADHD.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: We're awfully close and I never tell people to go out and order fMRI or SPECT scanning, but I'm right. just close to being able to change my recommendation. Beyond that, though, I mean, this isn't new research. Mayo Clinic was working on pharmacogenomic testing 20 Mm -hmm. years ago. So it's not a new idea. The research base is really strong. I think where we get hung up is now that this is spun out into the commercial labs. So Ah. when you consider what the claim to fame is of a particular company that's Mm -hmm. going to test some genes for you, cytochrome P450 genes, or maybe some dynamic genes like the serotonin transporter gene, um, you've got to really start to look at these consortiums that have come together, all of these brilliant minds in genomics mm-hmm. and genetics to say, there are thousands of genes we could be testing. And this is where the slippery slope argument happens. When you're looking for high quality evidence to decide one, whether to do it, and if if so, yes, which genes you should be paying attention to, mm-hmm. that's where CPIC comes in. That's where the FDA has actually rendered some opinions to say, these, these are the shortlist genes that you should test because we have enough evidence two decades on to say, if you make clinical decisions based upon these genotypes and phenotypes, the clinical outcomes do change. They improve if you actually guide your care based upon genomic decisions on this short list of well-researched genes, not just everything, these are the ones that show us evidence for efficacy and clinical utility. So if you're following the clinical consortiums like CPIC or the FDA's group on, on genetic testing, you can't go wrong. I mean, certainly it's not FDA approved yet, but Mm -hmm. at least the FDA has said these are places where we know genetics weighs in on how these medicines work and how they're metabolized. So dear clinician, pay attention to that. It can change the outcome and the tolerability if nothing else. So we're, we're darn close, especially with genomics (laughs) and, and pharmacogenomics in particular.
1: Uh, It's so exciting, right? We've been hearing about this our entire careers then, but Not been prescribing that way. Okay, I'm going to circle back to what you just said about the FDA and ordering some of these tests in a second. But (laughs) while we're talking about true effect, what kind of impact could this have on health outcomes? Do we have data yet to say, look, when I'm in a practice and I'm doing this for this cohort of patients, I can improve a GAD 7 score four weeks quicker if I Run XYZ. I mean, yeah. where are we in yeah. the data to say this could have huge impact on health outcomes?
2: We're everywhere with these data. So, as a as a psychiatry provider, of course, those are the studies I follow most closely. I will say this: the data for depression, and I guess if you extrapolate depression biochemistry to include anxiety, so let's just put that, let's couch those together because they share so much in terms of neurobiology and neurochemistry. So, major depressive disorder and various stripes of anxiety. The data are very compelling um, in terms of genomically guided prescribing for those entities. So there has been, to my mind, about a half dozen good quality studies over the last 10 years. Some of them were open label. We, we have one that was actually double blinded, and it was published pre-pandemic. So I want to say it was probably 2016, early 2017. Um, it was called the guided study. And okay. it really looked at the treatment of major depressive disorder and trying to decide if we did influence outcomes by using pharmacogenomics to prescribe for depression. And so this was a trial that took place, it, it was it was double blind for an eight week period. And at the end of the eight weeks, everything became apparent and they actually continued the study open label uh, for an additional eight week period. And the questions that were posed were first of all, clinical utility outcomes, right? So right. those who were managed with a pharmacogenomic test versus those who weren't. And it was interesting, the the, the endpoints in that study, to my mind, if, if my memory is correct, were symptom improvement, which is just the patient saying at an interval, let's just say four weeks, that they're feeling better. Uh, 11% relative improvement in patient's ability to say that. Now that was not statistically significant, but it was trending in that direction. Okay. What was interesting is the second endpoint was symptomatic response. Which is defined as at least a fifty percent reduction in the severity of the depression, as okay. measured by. I think in this case they were probably using the Ham D. Okay. Uh, probably the Ham D seventeen, but you could use the PHQ nine. You could use the Beck Depression Inventory. Anything that produces an aggregate severity score. So uh, I believe it was somewhere around. I want to say it was 35% thereabouts in relative improvement in response. So, people who were actually tamping down that score by at least half in a four to six week period. And it was a 50% relative improvement in remission, which is a score less than five. So, that was compelling. But where it got really interesting, where I really started to pay attention, is when things opened up and they continued to manage now everybody in the cohort using pharmacogenomics with their depression two things came to mind there were about 200 sub odd patients 216 patients who actually were on genetically discordant medications meaning that the drug they were on at the time they entered the study was not optimal. It was not compatible either with their metabolism and their cytochrome P450 system or with their dynamics of the receptors, the reuptake pumps and the enzymes. Mm -hmm. So the question was, if we literally moved that type of patient onto anything else that was more genetically compatible, what would be the outcome? And the data there were, I think it was a 73% relative improvement in symptomatic improvement. And it was in the 90% 90 percentile improvement for those who are trending toward remission and 153 percent relative improvement in people who actually made their first remission just to get on something that is more genetically compatible so for me that was really compelling data but i will tell you terry i've been doing this for 13 years in my clinic and i've got dozens of examples people i have met and know their names who have seen the needle finally move when we yeah. finally got testing and finally started to manage their care in some sort of scientific way, <laughs> that yeah. was precise. So I've got anecdotal information and I've got some really interesting research data, but guided was the first trial that showed us, it does matter. It does okay. make it-
1: I wrote all of that down. I'm going to look that study up and what you're saying is so compelling to me as a clinician because I just feel like, I'm constantly saying to patients, well, let's just increase the dose and give it four more weeks or let's just, and let's move from this one to the And and we may be four months in trying, here's what we did first line and here's what we're trying second line because of your symptoms. And some of these have different symptoms at lower doses and higher doses. And it's like, I'm feeling around in the dark, right? With this big whole bunch of medicines until I find the one that might get the spot. And then Mm -hmm. if I drop the GAD and the PQH, I give both of them, because I don't have one patient who's not depressed and anxiety right. at the same time, or vice versa. Yeah, show me
2: one. Show me one, right?
1: Yeah. And they get so frustrated, right? Or they'll come in and say, "I've been on X, Y, Z, and so it's been years. It's a chronic disease, and none of this is helping," and the patients just get to a, a stage of desperation. Well, they're
2: frustrated. They're angry, and yeah. right. Now, I, I've had one person, and I stole her quote, but she said, "I feel like a human dartboard." You know, I feel like someone is just throwing handfuls of medication molecules at me, hoping that one, heaven forbid, lands near the bullseye and gives me some relief, even in one domain. And it's true. Mm -hmm. I didn't count this morning, but I think there are somewhere around 65 plus different options available for the treatment of depression. Mm -hmm. And at some point, it really is like trying to find a needle in a haystack. And each one of them, to your point, takes at least three to five weeks to evaluate any little change you make because of the state of the art. And we know now too, that this is not just chemical imbalance. So that frustration with, why does it take four weeks to evaluate Mm -hmm. a medication change? We're waiting for genetics to change. And that takes about six weeks in the laboratory.
1: Right. Healing those synapses. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes I wonder if we explained that better to patients. And so You recently did a fantastic presentation, too, for us in San Diego, really tackling this subject, and I will try not to get too far off course of what we're doing, but I think sometimes, like, if you explain to a patient with even a sprain, no, it's not broken, but it's still going to take six to eight weeks because of blood flow to that tendon and what we've done, I think if we explain the healing process of synapses and and neurotransmitters and that connection. I, I think they might understand that a little more, but we haven't. We've just been, well, it takes four to eight weeks for the medication. And we're gonna make sure you just don't have side effects. I mean, I'm checking in just to make sure you tolerate it, that you're not having night sweats, you're not having nightmares, you didn't have weight gain, you didn't lose libido headache. and you yes. headache, what right?
2: Yep. Well, and it's sad that we were in a place for a long time. I actually had a psychiatrist when I was still working inpatient as an RN who actually said, and if a patient isn't having side effects in the first two weeks, the medicine is not going to work. And that's what he would tell patients. Oh. And I think we've, we've come a little way, but we're still way far from patient education to your point. And it doesn't have to be a lesson in neurobiology, not patients don't have an appetite for that, but it should at the least right. be the conversation to say, Terry, if you and I are two nerve cells in the brain and we're used to being shoulder to shoulder, almost touching, but not quite. So it's really easy for us to talk to each other and reassure each other and calm each other down. Whatever this has happened in the world, whatever in the environment has caused us to tease apart, we've taken a giant step. We've moved across the street from each other. So my shouting at you is no longer reassuring. You can't hear me anymore. So When I when I'm the talker in our relationship, our little cellular relationship, when I go on an antidepressant, I'm talking loud and I'm talking long and I'm shouting across the street and you're still not hearing me all the time. What I need to do, and it takes me a while, I have to get hoarse and exhausted and frustrated and I have to go back in the house as the talking neuron and write you a postcard and I have to mail it across the street to say, Terry, this ain't working for me. We got to move back together. And it takes about a month and a half for me to say, I got to write Terry a postcard. And then when you receive it, guess what? Magic happens. Mm -hmm. You say, you're right. I'm unhappy too. We should move back together. And the minute we start to see those cells migrate six weeks Mm -hmm. into treatment, depression lifts, anxiety goes down. That's when the therapeutic effective medicine happens. So whether they understand receptor upregulation and downregulation and genetics and epigenetics, I don't care. But they need to understand that we're dealing with moving cells at this point. We're not just changing chemistry. So yeah. even explaining that much can be really helpful.
1: I like that analogy. Patients yeah. get analogies if we just take a minute or two to yeah. explain them. Oh, that was really good. So, so the next logical question is why, why aren't we adopting this? What's the barrier to implementation, the primary barrier?
2: It's multifaceted, of course. So talk to a psychiatrist sometimes and say, why aren't you doing pharmacogenomic testing in your practice? And the ones who are really honest tell you two things. One, there's no financial upside, which I think is a shame. Um, we don't. As prescribers, providers, we, we don't charge for this testing. It, it's viewed like any other testing we would do for cholesterol or a thyroid panel or a blood count. So no, there's, there's no financial incentive for us to do it. But... <laughs> Well then they'll also tell you it takes time. You've got to go into a portal and re-enter patient demographics and diagnostic information and medication history. So they also say it takes a long time for them to order the test. Mm. Okay. That's a cop-out too, in my view, especially if the labs finally, and this is this takes us on a slight diversion, but they're hearing us. So when I call a commercial lab and I say, Here's here's the pushback I'm getting. When I try to go talk about this or I do a consultation with someone else. We're not going to change the finances. I don't think it should be about finances. You should want this for your patient. It makes you look like a rock star when you suddenly Mm -hmm. have a piece of paper in your hand that makes you suddenly crack the code after a patient's been stuck for years. So Mm -hmm. get over that. Your ego will will reap those rewards without a single dollar changing hands. But if you are able to order this from your EMR, if we had an API or some sort of integration between your Mm -hmm. electronic medical record and the portal. It's a mm-hmm. click at this point if you can get the integration built. So even the time suck yep. that is ordering is easily surmounted. For me, that, that was the first pushback. And then the second is patience, right? How much is this going to cost me?
1: Yes. What's well, my, my, pay?
2: What's my <laughs> yep. co-pay? Um, you know, am I on the hook now for thousands of dollars of lab testing? Because I won't lie to you. Any lab that's doing this, let me think them through. None of them. None of them bill quickly. None of them give up on first appeal. And the first EOB that comes from your insurance is frightening. So I I tell my, you got to, you got to do this education too. the financial piece. You're going to get an explanation of benefits from your insurance. That's going to cause your hair to turn white. Look at it, put it in a little folder and go about your life. These labs all have built in safety nets and all kinds of caps and sliding scales and patient assistant plans. There is no reason to not order this test anymore. So third party commercial insurers are covering it. Medicare and Medicaid are covering it. Um, There's just there's no reason to not get the test. So I I think most of the objections are at this point addressed. And Mm -hmm. I think the other piece is knowledge deficit. Now, I think we're just fighting the fact that people don't know they can order this now. Even if you're in primary care, you can get psychopharmacogenomic testing as a family nurse practitioner or an adult nurse practitioner or a pediatric nurse practitioner. We should all be looking at this. Because to your point, show me a patient who hasn't come into your primary care practice in the last three years, who isn't bringing a little bit of this emotional residue that you could do something with if you had a confident stance with some information at your fingertips. So there's no reason anymore.
0: (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> no, I appreciate that. Um, let's let's talk about the clinician education part because we all know, and we were taught in school. Here's a CBC. Here's a CMP. Here's what's in it. I know how to get it at LabCorp at Quest. I know how to write it a million different ways. I know a CPT code. How easy is this, and why is it not out there? Do I just order? I want pharmacogenomic testing for Mrs. Smith who's 40. Yeah. That's it. That's
2: all yeah, I have to write. Yeah. It's um, I'm trying. There are three commercial labs, four. A fourth is coming back. Um, but there are three that have been out there doing this. And they all offer a, an assay for mental health, meaning that they're going to get for you all of the genetics, hopefully the ones that are researched and have a consensus opinion, <laughs> meaning they have clinical utility and efficacy. So the big three, one of them is a little loosey-goosey. One of them orders a lot of stuff that isn't in the consortium. The other two do, and the third one is darn militant. They will only report on genes and recommendations that have level 1A clinical support from the FDA, CPIC, or both. But what they've done is curated a list for mental and behavioral health, which will give you genetics, match to formulary for antidepressants, anxiolytics, mood stabilizers, antipsychotics, and second-generation agents of all kinds. Um, wow they'll give you psychostimulants, both stimulant and non-stimulant. They'll give you benzodiazepines and sleep aids. And then most of them will at least report out on what's called the MTHFR gene, which gives you a really important glimpse into folate metabolism related specifically to the brain's ability to use activated folate to manufacture the monoamine neurotransmitters. Really important for medication efficacy. So most all of them will give you that, and you just basically order their mental health assay or whatever snazzy little product name they have for their mental health item in their okay. their lab. So, um, yes, it's that easy.
1: <laughs> Perfect. Oh, that was great. I just wrote all that down. Okay, now it's time to turn the page because I filled that page. No, <laughs> oh, good. good. <laughs> That's why I love doing we'll, these. We'll stop i learned no so much. Is <laughs> Okay. All right, okay. Great. <laughs> we'll just keep everyone going.
2: That's all right. right.
1: So we talked insurance coverage from a clinician standpoint. Is there anything we need to be aware of, or do we just let these lab companies do this?
2: What's nice is the labs don't want us to go awry. They don't want patients to be stressed. They don't want to be strapped, and they don't want the patient stuck in the middle. So what labs have done as a safety net is they usually have, as you're making the order, they have a widget or a plug-in or a little coach that helps you through the order to help you code it properly. So what you will end up with is a very short list of diagnoses that are reimbursable in the context of this this lab test. Okay. So it'll help you code properly. And then most of them will say, hey, what medicines has this patient tried and failed? What are they taking currently? And what are you considering? And two things. It shows to the third-party payer. Right. Where in the treatment landscape this person lands? Are they treatment naive? And I'll even order this for treatment naive patients. Think about an eight-year-old mm-hmm. who is in third or fourth grade and struggling with mm-hmm. not sitting in, the, in his chair, you know, up wandering around the classroom, getting sent to the principal's office, not being able to make it through math, getting, getting really poor grades. This is someone who you've worked up for ADHD and we're finally, we got mom this close to thinking about medicines. And do you wanna choose the right one for this eight-year-old earlier rather than later? Yes. So every moment of growth and development time Mm loss is extremely costly. Um, I don't mess around. So at that point, it's okay to say, this patient's never tried anything. They're naive, but here are the three I'm considering. That still will allow you to code the requisition and make a case for what you're attempting to do. It also tells insurance where a patient's tried and failed 15 medicines already that they've paid for. They're ready for this test. They said, Where where do we write the check? This would be great information for us to have so that we're not paying for many, many expensive drugs. Psychotropics are some of the most costly. And God forbid, this is a person near the end of the rope saying, I've tried pretty much everything on the menu. And what's left for me is to essentially go into the hospital. And the last thing insurance wants to do is pay for a hospitalization. So they're finally coming around to the earlier we do this, yeah, that's a pretty hefty price tag. It's about four thousand dollars worth of lab testing. Um, most patients will pay no more than about three hundred bucks on their worst day. Most of them, with the sliding scale and the need-based calculations, pay someplace between zero and forty dollars. So it's weird. not expensive. But insurance even says, even if we pay four K for this testing, what's it cost for one day of skilled inpatient care in a psych mm-hmm. facility? So they're finally understanding that, but the lab will help you as a clinician to make sure that's coded in a compelling way that immediately cues insurance into where the patient is along the treatment journey and where they're honestly going to save some money if they approve this testing and cover it today. So that will happen. I will always tell patients, as I said before, that first claim is going to be denied, but all of these insurance companies have divisions that work with the labs, and the labs have huge cadres of billers who will submit, I don't know, up to 20 appeals. So it's the other thing you should tell your patients. If you're going to try this, EOBs are going to show up. Those aren't bills. Those are just progress reports. That's what I view it as a progress report. That's the number <laughs> will be going down. The insurance may go back and forth with the lab for up to a year. So I wow. tell some patients, you got to let this just go on autopilot until you see a bill from the lab, which may take eight to 12 months, you're not on the hook for anything and they've got to get comfortable with that. And they need to
1: anticipate that. Yeah. Well, we're all so terrified of medical debt, right? So yeah. yeah, And so many of my patients just don't have resources. So I think this is a really important conversation to be having. so it takes a little time on clinician side. We've got to explain that. We've got to explain why. Then we got to put it in the portal. About how much time do you think it takes you overall to get people here and then put in the order and then how long does it take to get results back?
2: Yeah, it's faster than it used to be. Okay. Um, I can I can, I know if the screen's like the back of my hand is like tying my shoes at this point. I can place an order in 90 seconds. So the the thing that takes me the longest is finding the patient's cell phone number to put in because they do get a couple texts so they can track their samples along the way. So Mm -hmm. I like to do that for them so they know exactly where everything is. I can place an order in about two minutes, 90 seconds or so. Um, What's cool and what happened during the pandemic is this person, and this is great for us, Terry, because we're telehealth providers. The lab will actually send a kit, a collection kit to the patient's house direct So they don't have to come to the office. They don't have to have blood drawn. They don't have to do anything other than check the front doorstep when FedEx or UPS comes that day. The kit comes overnight, prepaid. Um, They're going to collect their own samples. These are cheek swabs. So no blood drawn, no finger sticks. Even the lab that was a holdout for saliva samples finally knocked that off. Because that was tough. Coaching people through collecting a large amount of saliva (laughs) was a problem.
1: I'm having flashbacks (laughs) to when we used to try to get sputum cultures in the hospital. Oh, my God.
2: It brought back those memories for me, too. Especially (laughs) with a pediatric patient. How to teach them how to produce that much spit into a a very limited amount of targets. That was fun. So it's all cheek swabs. All they have to do once they've collected... 10 10 brushes of the left cheek, 10 brushes of the right cheek into the envelope. They can either input their insurance information into a secure portal, the lab sends a link, or if they wanna just make an old fashioned photocopy of the front and back of the insurance card and send it back with the samples, that's fine too. They call 1-800-FEDEX, drop it by a FedEx Kinko's, it's prepaid, it goes back to the lab overnight. We've come a long way from those early trials where we, we were using DNA evidence, I think back to OJ Simpson, Remember how long it took for the labs to process RLFP and the PCR. That's still the technology, but it takes 36 hours. So from the time the lab gets the samples to the time the report is produced in your portal, it's about a day and a half. And it comes securely to me. I get an email that says, we've got a report ready. I can download it securely. I'm back on the phone or back on a Zoom call with that patient the next day. So end-to-end, five to seven days tops. Okay. Fast.
1: Yeah. All right. Good to know. Cheaper than getting, and uh, quicker than getting a PATH report. I Absolutely.
2: Mean, yes. Right. Yeah. We're so. not doing frozen section. None of that is happening. So okay. um, super fast, super fast. I, you know, I think the difference is since we're talking report and workflow, one of the things clinicians should do is talk to the big three or the big four labs and say, show me an example of your report. They all look very different. They all have slightly different genes. They all test the same core group of genes. Some of them will give you additional genes, as I mentioned. Um, Some of them call them emerging evidence. So they'll at least give you the genotypes if you're interested. It's just that the strength of the evidence isn't quite there to wrap that into the recommendations. Some of them are very colorful. They're color-coded. Some of them are graphical or iconic. So it needs to be what makes sense to you, what you can make heads or tails of quickly. And then, I didn't realize this until I'd done it for about a a year. And that is, it needs to be a document that you're comfortable handing to the patient
1: Mm. to say,
2: this also needs to make sense to you Mm -hmm. because it forms an incredible tool for you to say, now we can sit on the same side of this problem and we can look at it as biology, which is what it is. This isn't a character flaw. This isn't a weakness in your Mm -hmm. personality structure. This is a biological problem like diabetes or Mm -hmm. high blood pressure or a problem with your cholesterol. So we're gonna sit over here on the same side of the world and look at this report together and it's suddenly gonna make the pieces fall into place. So when they start to see these meds that they've tried and failed or had weird side effects or weight gain or issues with, suddenly they go, oh my gosh, look at where that is. It's not compatible for me. So I'm fighting biology here and I'm losing and that's not my fault. So it takes the stigma away. It takes the weakness, the character, the intangible Mm -hmm. nature of mental health and mental illness out of the picture. And suddenly you're just looking at the best way to treat a biological illness. And suddenly they're they're comfortable and they're not embarrassed and we're seeing the world through the same set of lenses. And that is a big important tool for that reason.
1: (sighs) You just wrapped us up so nicely. I was gonna ask a (laughs) final question, like what's the key takeaway but I think it's that, right? It's, it's you clearly have an illness. Here's how we're gonna go about treating it now. We actually have a tool. And wh- what clinician doesn't want that, especially with the struggles we have in treating some of these um, mood disorders, even in everyday primary care.
2: Okay. Well, and I think having that conversation and approaching it that way is crucial because it's sometimes compatible can be taken to mean dangerous. You know, Not for me, time out, not using a certain medication. So you do have to have that dialogue to say these are not as compatible. It doesn't mean they're going to hurt you. It just means there is no dose that is gonna be small or large enough for this to ever make a difference for you or to be tolerable for you. So a lot of them will misappropriate the data if you're not careful in the conversation They may present this to another clinician. We used to get testing for analgesics as well. We could get opioid and non-opioid analgesics. And that that appeared as a category. It was a a neuropsychiatric, pain is a neuropsychiatric syndrome. So it still appears on some of these reports. They would go to pain management and hold <laughs> that provider hostage and it would be very contentious and suddenly pain management would call and say why in heaven's name did you get this testing and <laughs> give it to this patient because now we're have, we're at loggerheads where you have an adversarial relationship now so be careful to say just okay. because it's in your red box or because you've got that big caution sign on your report that's all it means
0: okay. think it
2: through sometimes it's a dosage adjustment Sometimes you need to add or subtract another medication to clear a pathway for this medication to work. Or it's a sign for us to collaborate with another prescriber to say, can we, can we do something that is more lock and key for both of the problems we're trying to come at from two different angles here? Yeah. So explaining that to the patient is really important so they don't misunderstand or misappropriate the information you've just handed them. Okay. Um, that's really important. And the other thing I think is really important is the longevity of this testing. They don't ever have to repeat this. You know, you're born with these genes and you're gonna take these genes to the grave with you. So this is a one and done for the most part, unless, and here's the other question to ask your lab in addition to show me your report format. Tell me what happens when some amazing new antidepressant or antipsychotic or mood stabilizer gets approved and comes up next year. A lot of them are doing one of two things. Some of them are just testing this very narrow scope of genes for just today's medications. And if we wanted to update the report, we might have to get new samples,
0: Uh. versus
2: there's one company that actually is running the entire genome. It takes them a little longer, but they are sequencing the entire genome for that patient. So it's on file in the computer. So when a new medicine comes out, you call the lab and say, hey, I noticed we've got a new mood stabilizer. Will you map that and reproduce the report? And they do it for free. And it takes about an hour.
1: You so, know, 23andMe is doing that with yes. people's samples to see, right? Yeah. Because it's information for them as well. And so the more information they have, the more that they can um, fine tune what they're doing, yeah. right? Well, to yeah. me, that's the
2: last disconnect. How many of us have done an Ancestry or a 23andMe, and we've got the genome? How? When is the next lab going to say, I can't take it from you, dear patient, but where is that that sort of collaboration between those companies to say for healthcare, we will send your genome wherever you want it so that that lab can make use of it. And I think that's the next big step for us as a as an educated, health-consuming public to have that expectation. I think it's a reasonable one. So mm-hmm. waiting for someone to say, bring it on, bring me your 23andMe, we can use it.
1: <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I love that. Oh, yeah. this, it's been such a great conversation. I, we could talk for a long time so i'm going to wrap it up right here so we're going to take this away we really should be accessible for any patient with this we need to know what the report is and how to read it and we need to prepare the patient for what it says and what the green box means and the yellow box and the red box and um for those of you who haven't seen one of these reports if you've ever done an asthma action plan you'll go oh that
2: looks familiar (laughs) yeah right
1: right yeah that's good um i'm hoping to you know, our friends in diabetes, because that's my area. Really, continuous glucose monitoring was in this same place it over yeah. two decades ago. And they just kept pushing and then they standardized the reports and they just kept talking and gathering evidence. And what do you know? It's now recommended, right? And we'll pay for it. And the reports look the same, and a patient can read them. And so hopefully we'll get there.
2: It's gonna this. be standard of care in my lifetime. I'm confident. Yes, yes, it
1: will be lovely. <laughs> Well, thank you, Josh, so much for being here with us today. I'm so excited for this and to get this out to everybody. Um, For everyone listening, um be sure to check out npace.org for information on all things npace we just put our 2024 conferences out and we were talking about that earlier but san diego where josh was he did two presentations one on major depressive disorder and one on anxiety disorder and it was pharmacogenomics basically from this standpoint and it was fantastic those were the two best presentations i've ever heard in all of my years and i think Every university needs to put them into their pharmacology class for NP students. So I've said that, but you can find those at learn.npace.org so you can hear more from Josh Hamilton. We will have um, Dr. Hamilton on with us next year, I'm pretty sure, at least a couple of places. So thank you, everybody, for tuning in. This concludes our Friends of NPACE podcast for today. Keep an eye out on our website and social media channels for updates on when the next episode will roll. And a big thank you again to Josh Hamilton and to my NPACE crew for producing and making this happen today.